Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for people who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm really excited to share this interview with you. I'm your host, Calvin Ng from Yale University. Miracles of Material Life, Rise, or Traps and Guns in Islamic Malaya by Professor Terence Sevier, published by Cambridge University Press in 2020, is a pioneering book across the fields of South Asian history, Islamic history, and Indian Ocean history. In this groundbreaking new study, Terence Sevier reveals the economic, environmental, and religious significance of Islamic miracle workers, or pawangs, in the 19th and 20th century Malay world. Through close textual analysis of overlooked manuscripts and personal interaction with modern pawangs, readers are introduced to a universe of miracle workers that existed both in the past and in the present, uncovering connections between miracles and material life. Sevier demonstrates how societies in which the production and extraction of natural resources, as well as the uses of technology, were intertwined with the knowledge of charismatic religious figures and locates the roles of the Pawangs in the spiritual economy of the Indian Ocean world, across maritime connections and Sufi networks, um, and on the frontier of the British Empire. Over the course of our conversation, we will talk not just about Professor Terence Sevier's approach to teaching and writing history, but also how he came to this project. What were some of the decisions that he made when assembling a cogent archive of religious life? I will also ask what can Southeast Asian history and Islamic history gain from Indian Ocean world studies. To learn about those issues and more, join us and stay tuned. I hope you enjoyed the book and I hope you enjoy our conversation as well. Today, I'm here to talk to Professor Terence Sevier, the author of the captivating book, Miracles and Material Life, Rise, or Traps and Guns in Islamic Malaya. By discussing this book, we will dive deep to learn about the fine-grained details of religious life in the Malay world, spanning British colonial Malaya to modern-day Malaysia and Singapore. Terence Sevier is a scholar of Islam and Muslim societies in South and Southeast Asia and received his PhD in history from the University of California, Los Angeles. Before joining Harvard Divinity School, he served as assistant professor of South Asian studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Sevier is also the author of a number of book chapters and journal articles pertaining to Indian Ocean networks, Sufi textual traditions, Islamic erotology, and the socioeconomic significance of spirits that have been published in journals such as Third World Quarterly and Modern Asian Studies. In addition to this, he is coordinator of a multimedia project entitled The Lighthouses of God, Mapping Sanctity Across the Indian Ocean, which investigates the evolving landscapes of Indian Ocean Islam through photography, film, and GIS technology. Welcome, Taryn, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thank you so much to, uh, for for uh, thank you so much t- uh, for taking the time to talk about your enjoyable book today. 
So first, can you start us off by saying a few words about yourself? That is, when, where did you grow up? How did you become interested in the study of religious life? Um, and how did you come to write Miracles and Material Life? How did the idea develop? What the research process was like? What archives you turned to? And how was your writing experience? Thank you so much, Kelvin, if I may. And it's such a privilege and honor to be here to discuss my work. And I think you've been very, very kind and praised about my text. And I, I definitely hope it's, it's, it's a readable one. And uh, in terms of your question, so let me uh, try to, uh, this, let me try to answer them in the best way I can briefly. In terms of my own background, I, I actually grew up in the Malay world, and I grew up uh, primarily in Singapore, and. One of the things that I would describe my own experiences and how it actually shaped my research project is I often describe it that I, I often describe the world I grew up in as a, as a universe of miracle workers. Now, this, this, this world that I grew up in, I mean, my initial education into these spirit mediums, miracle workers, came very much from, from going to Malay classes. My Malay teachers, for that matter, would often, what were my my earliest and some of my finest teachers about this world, this multiverse of spirits, spirit mediums, miracle workers. Beyond that, I mean, beyond the the Malay education I had, I mean, very much I was surrounded by 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 people who were very much convinced about the powers of these miracle workers and spirit mediums that I I ended up studying at the later stage of life. Now, whether these miracle workers and spirit mediums were 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 followed, were employed, or whether they were scorned, right, by by these people, these communities of people that I grew up with, there was no question about the potency of their power. Indeed, I mean, at a very early age, I was introduced to the idea that that some of these miracle workers and spirit mediums are much more efficacious than doctors that we might be more familiar going to, for that matter. There was this idea that that these spirit mediums and miracle workers were more efficacious healers. At least they didn't deal with biomet they didn't work through methods of biomedicine that actually work through visible symptoms. These these miracle workers and spirit mediums got to the root cause of 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 diseases or or, or problems that that the groups of people that I grew up with were familiar with. And that were this the spirit causes of these physical and material phenomena that we, we easily identify. Now, sorry, that might be a long-winded answer to your, to your question about the, 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 the background I grew up in, but I was just trying to very quickly summarize that I grew up in this world where, where these miracle workers and spirit mediums were, were, almost, were almost ubiquitous and surrounding all of us. Now, un- unfortunately, I mean, I would say that now, unfortunately, in spite of this world I grew up in, for a long period of time, I, I bracketed off this, this world as one of childhood curiosity. And I, I never actually worked on these spirit mediums and miracle workers in spite of the prominence. I remember that even as I would leave Singapore for graduate studies, I would constantly be fed stories of these of miracle workers and spirit mediums on the phone or through any contact that I had with 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 my my with be it with friends, be it with relatives in the Malay world, in Singapore, Malaysia, etc. But but what what eventually happened was I unexpectedly, if I could say that, almost got back into working into these miracle workers when I was I was involved in one project. I won't elaborate on that and take too much of time to to work on a certain spirit medium and miracle worker in two thousand and seven. But that too led to a series of steps 
I mean, as a PhD student, I, I had not intended to work on spirit mediums and miracle workers. But, but upon going into the archives, I discovered a number of manuscripts that were produced by miracle workers, spirit mediums, pawangs or bomos of the past. And it's this, uh, the, I, working, working through the archives, I discovered more and more manuscripts. And one of the things that I was very privileged to actually have was to be guided by, by a number of scholars of both uh, Islamic textual traditions and historians of the Malay world, historians of the Indian Ocean, as I actually got down into working on these manuscripts. But beyond that, what I was largely privileged to to gain guidance of was, was as I discovered these manuscripts and started reading these manuscripts on these miracle workers of the past. I mean, what I was privileged to have was the fact that I could actually read a number of these manuscripts with living spirit mediums and miracle workers. Now, much of my work was very much guided and driven by the fact that I had, I sat down with miracle workers, spirit mediums, pawangs, bomos in, 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 in present parts of the Malay world and actually could read this, these traditions with them. Now, this was a very, I mean, of course, I, uh, I, could, I could go on about this, but what, what these, this experience of reading this text was very much guided me into understanding how miracles and spirits were always embodied, uh, sorry, always embedded in work, labor, and what I would define in this book as material life. Now, of course, I mean, this was a very humbling experience over the past few years to sit down with these men and women and these spirit mediums and actually engage these traditions with them. And I could, uh, I mean, I, I, of course, I, I would, I mean, if I elaborate on this, we'll, we'll probably take up more time in the interview. So I should probably hold myself and go on to the next question. Thank you so much for, for that uh, answer, Taryn, because I, I definitely think that your personal relationships with these Bomas and Pawangs, and we can definitely talk a lot more about this later, that formed the, the, the crux of this book, right? Because at, at its core, it's really animated and informed by your, by your ethnographic and your close personal correspondence with, with these uh, Bomos. So I guess that also leads us to our next question, which is, as a historian of Islam and of the Malay world, can you tell us how you became interested in the Indian Ocean world? Hi, Kelvin. Thank you for your question. And uh, I, I think I think I can't take the credit for actually being a scholar for the, of the Indian Ocean world because of the fact that that I was I mean I got to attribute all this credit for thinking much more oceanically upon my teachers themselves. I was, for the matter, I was as I did my graduate studies, I was taught by a number of uh, scholars of Indian Ocean Studies who often pushed me to think much further in terms of this. And beyond that, I mean, I got a credit even thinking oceanically to, to earlier scholars of Malay textual traditions and Southeast Asianists. So for the matter, I mean, I think, I think compared to many area study scholars, I mean, Southeast Asianists have often, I, if I, I believe at least the Southeast Asianists have largely informed my work, think much more oceanically. I mean, and I, I would compare them to scholars of South Asia, for that matter, who have think, thought much more in, in terms of the nation state. I think Southeast Asianists have always been much more open in terms of these maritime connections. And I think one of the things that I was largely privileged to be guided by was scholars who often, often uh, kind of drilled into me that, that the best way to go would be to take the best of the area studies approach of 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 getting down into languages, uh, studying text, etc., and understanding these manuscripts in their, their fully in in the most most uh, the, the the best way possible to do them justice, and beyond that, to gain by the guidance of Indian Oceanists who have oft, 
encourage me to think in a broader sense and push against the artificial boundaries that have been created both geopolitically and and historiographically. Now, beyond that, I mean, again, I, I what else I would say was that I can't take the credit of of, of being Indonesianist because or, or thinking oceanically. That's what I mean. Because of the fact that these texts themselves encouraged me to do that. So, I mean, one of the things that I did while reading these manuscripts was to follow what the text often said. So, as I studied these texts, the text itself kind of, and the actors that, that, that I was trying to study through these texts often followed, often were mobile. Now, these, was, these texts open, opened up a world for me of mobile actors, mobile spirits, and mobile traditions. Now, none of these, these uh, actors, spirits, and traditions that I, I've studied in these books or all the manuscripts were, were bound by the imposed boundaries that 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 imposed geopolitical boundaries or at times the imposed artificial boundaries that might come up in times in literature now indeed what what was quite striking about this text if i might say was that as as you pointed out in your 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 wonderful introduction to my work i mean kelvin that these texts were at times very much about frontiers and 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 if we think about frontiers, we often don't think of them as those literal worlds that 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 might excite us when we think about the ocean space. But very much these texts were were stark reminders that even the frontiers were very much worlds that were cosmopolitan. These were frontiers populated by diverse spirit populations, diverse diverse spirit mediums, etc. And at times, I mean, I think uh, I think I mean I'm not going to spell. I'm not going to break down uh, the diverse populations that were populating these frontiers, but what I'm because that would I mean they were they were cost, di- richly cosmopolitan frontiers. But what I just want to say is that these front these texts on frontiers often reminded us that these to to think in terms of the connections between various parts of the Indian Ocean world, the South China Sea, the Atlantic Pacific Oceans, etc. And and all I can say is that rather than taking the credit of of of, of thinking oceanically, I, I would say that I was I was myself guided to think oceanically by following these texts. I, I hope that kind of answers your question. Sorry. Definitely. And uh readers, uh this is a really rich text where you have Bawangs who are of Minangkabau, of uh, Tamil and of uh, South Yemeni origins, just jostling along with, you know, uh, Chinese tin prospectors and British colonial administrators and Malay villages. And it's such a rich text that you you really get a sense of the lived everyday cosmopolitanism of these frontiers. Um, and that's to say nothing of, you know, Rama's encounters with Solomon, uh, which I'll leave you, re- reader, to discover for yourself in this wonderful book. So um, moving on to our next question, which is the book itself, it addresses a broad range of archival material and thematic concerns in a very succinct 218 pages. Can you share with us how you organize the book chronologically and thematically? Um, So who were the intended primary theoretical interlocutors for this work? And what sort of historiographical intervention did you seek to make? So thank you, Kelvin. I mean, it's a. I mean, just to. I mean, these were these were richly caught. I mean, in one. I mean, in one of a better term, richly cosmopolitan frontiers, full of of uh, as you said, South Indian miracle workers, miracle worker spirit mediums of diverse mixed origins. Beyond that, spirits including including uh, Islamic prophets, Hindu divinities, etc. And I suspect we're going to be 
the conversation will lead us to questions in that direction. For the moment, I mean, in terms of your, your question or the organization of the book, I mean, uh, this this was this is a tough question because when I I set out to 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 study these manuscripts and study these spirit mediums, these miracle workers, I mean, I found a a kind of large collection of texts, and I mean, these were pertaining to various issues. I mean, so for the matter, one of the things that I discovered was how these figures that I was concerned about and the traditions I was concerned about pertain not just to the worlds I have studied, where rice production tin mining, uh, elephant expertise, or, or, or the use of weaponry, or the, or the mediation of technologies, but very much about all kinds of issues, be it house building, be it fishing, etc. And I, I had to make a, a choice to not look at those texts in this book, and very sadly. And, uh, but, but, and, and when I actually got these materials in terms of organizing them, I actually ended up doing... Uh, organizing it in a way of, of beginning with, with texts pertaining to agrarian frontiers, pertaining to rice cultivation, forest clearing, and then moving on to the world of mining, be tin and gold mining, moving on to the world of elephant mediation, hunting and trapping, and then eventually the mediation of technologies. And there I focus primarily on firearms technology. And I, I, I'm I, I've often wondered whether this organization has worked well, and I hope it has, and, and I hope it comes true. In, in terms of the historiographical intervention that I, I hope to make, I mean, and I, I must say that I, again, I, I, I'm, I'm, again I, I, I say that my work and my research benefits from generations of scholars who have studied Malay textual traditions and scholars who have studied Islamic miracles, miracle workers in various parts of the globe. And I, I hope that following their path, I made some interventions in the in the direction of studying Sufism, Islam, an Islamic multiverse. And 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 beyond that, just just studying how for the matter Islam is embedded into into material life. And I, I I I'll hold my I'll hold my tongue here because I believe that the following questions I might be able to elaborate on. I might be able to elaborate on these in the following questions, I mean. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for that, Taryn. Um, and you're right, because I, I think that the, the, the sort of integration of miracles and material, material life within a single analytic frame was definitely one of the strongest contributions of the book. But before we move on to that, uh, just a quick question about sources, you know, as historians. Uh, what sources, manuscripts, or documents are available to us as historians today um, on these forms of religious life, and what were the contexts under which the sources you examined were produced? What accounts for their relative neglect in the historiography of Southeast Asian Islam so far? And what implications does this history have for how we as historians think about such categories as Sufism, Islam, or the vernacular today? Thank you, Kelvin. So I think that's a, that's a fascinating question, and I, I will I will try to keep it brief and do justice to your your question there. And I think uh, in terms of the sources, and I mean, uh, I, I hope I'm not repeating myself here. Is that I think when I, I set out to look for these sources, I these materials are large the, that I worked with in this in this book were primarily uh, manuscripts on uh, Islamic theology, praxis, and 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 to appropriate. Uh, Nile Green's term, religious economies. I mean, these these manuscripts that I I, I pulled out in my, I, I these manuscripts that I worked on were, uh, were also manuscripts that have been often called magical manuscripts. 
I mean, if I said an inverted commas, inverted commas, sorry. Now, I, I think, as I said, I was following the work of scholars of Malay textual traditions in pulling out these manuscripts, trying to study them, etc. Now, a number of these texts uh, had been, I mean, I believe, neglected for a period of time for being magical texts, right? Full of fantasy, folk, full of folklore. And I mean, uh, on the face of it, I mean, these were these on the face of it, the, these texts might appear to have little say about socio-economic, cultural, or environmental history. But, but as I, as I mean, one of the, uh, the one of the arguments I hope to make in this book is actually there are rich sources of those histories. And to to answer your question on how these texts were produced, so on, so these texts are themselves divided. I mean, these manuscripts could at times be original manuscripts. They were, they were orally transmitted by these. Miracle workers, spirit mediums, pawangs, bomos, gurus, sheikhs of the past, and uh, or they could have been, uh, or they were manuscripts that at times, I mean, occasionally were even written by them. But on the other hand, they could be manuscripts that were copies of the manuscripts that were orally transmitted by these figures. So what I mean by by it's it's a kind of. Uh, mixed group of manuscripts now what what we have at this moment of time so we have originals we have we have originals that were stored in either libraries be it court libraries be it shrine libraries of the past and beyond that we have copies that were made so what i mean by copies is that 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 at these manuscripts that i've been studying were largely produced in 19 early, early 20th century now there were a number of scholars of oriental studies there were a number of of uh, colonial administrators were largely preoccupied with with collecting and preserving these manuscripts, and I, I mean, I could, I could, I mean, I hold myself for elaborating on the our purposes of collecting these manuscripts. But but what what was often happening was that a number of these scholars and administrators employed scribes to copy these manuscripts for the preservation and collecting of them. So what we we have is also copies of these manuscripts that 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 are preserved in European archives. So one, one of the things that I was, my, my sources largely preoccupied, uh, my, my sources came from both the European archives and beyond that, at times going down into shrine libraries, etc., into present-day Malay world and trying to understand this set of materials. Now, your questions are, are, are leading me in a direction to, and I, I, if I'm not taking too much time to also to say a couple of things, I believe, in 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 the sense that that what was happening here in terms of 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 the copying of these manuscripts, the preserving of of the knowledge of these pawangs, the preserving of the traditions of these pawangs, the genealogies, the methods, the techniques of these pawangs, be it by colonial scholars, etc., reminds us that 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 what we often assumed of as vernacular knowledge and and also can be the the category of the vernacular can be can be can be problematized if, if i can say in one of a better term and uh, i mean of course please feel free to 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 tell me if you'd like to me to elaborate on any part of this world of these sources and how they were collected how they were produced more if i'd like to and i think the before i i won't get into the the content of these manuscripts because i believe that's going to be something you're going to ask me about in the following questions now in terms of what these texts tell us about their implications for islam for that matter as you asked i think uh i mean i'm i mean i'm a scholar of sufism and islamic societies and islamic textual traditions and i think that that beyond the fact that these these uh i think any study of these Malay Islamic textual traditions is another reminder that 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 
that maybe that Southeast Asia is it should Southeast Asian Islamic textual traditions should be studied much more prominently within Islamic studies. I think one of the things that that I found very fascinating about these materials and all that is that again these these texts and these traditions and this this world that I was trying to study was very much about Islamic agents that have been no, neglected primarily in Islam, been neglected often within not only hist- uh, historiography of the Malay world, but beyond that, uh, within Islamic studies. Now, this takes us into a world of lived, experiential Islam and, and Islam on frontiers, and not an Islam that is theoretical or a prescriptive religion. Now, that that's why I was largely preoccupied with this world of miracles and miracle workers. And beyond that, I think, guys, I would... I would, I, I'll try to elaborate in the following questions as we get into the content of the materials. One of the things that I was really excited about in these materials and these sources was that how miracles were always tied up to materiality. And I think, I think these are the kind of materials, in spite of the fact that they might have been classified as magical at times, that lead us to actually complicate our definitions of religion, Islam, and think much more materially, as, as a number of religious studies scholars have encouraged us increasingly to think about religion. And uh, I'm sorry, does that answer your question, Kelly? Yeah, definitely does. That was such a beautiful, cogent answer. And I think that your, your, your point about the need to study Southeast Asian Islam in a much more rigorous manner in Islamic studies is very well taken because not many people know that the world's largest population of Muslims, uh, the in the world today, they live in Indonesia, um, followed by followed by Pakistan and India in South Asia. So I, I really think that there is a need to really account for this live experiential worlds of Islam as it is lived in the world today. Um, and I think that that leads us very nicely to our next question, which is about the protagonist of your book. Um, so could you just briefly, briefly tell us about the multiverse in which these Bomos existed? And who else, whether human or non-human, inhabited this multiverse? How did this bomos mediate between the physical and high worlds? And how does a historian today remain faithful to these expansive worlds? How are we to think about the interactions and references between Malay Muslims and pre-Islamic religions, non-Muslim traditions and divinities, and an emergent Islamic sphere? So that's a, that's a great question, Kelvin. And I, I to, to just uh, perhaps sum up what my the multiverse that I was preoccupied with this book constituted uh, the multiverse constituted of uh, of humans, uh, non human animals, uh, vegetation, spirits. Uh, I mean, twin, uh, as you said, Gaia or unseeable prophets, tutelary divinities, angels, uh, or demons uh, and defined as hantus or shaitan jinn this this was the multiverse and 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 not not to where it is uh, the multiverse of this text was leading into if not not I, i'll step back from probably getting too much into super cosmology but but just to put it out and and it's important to note was that what was often referred to in these textual traditions of the past and i would say of the present, because I remind, like I have to highlight that I, I read this text with living miracle workers and spirit mediums who were still operating in material worlds and and central to material activities. What was central to this world of these manuscripts and and was that the the visible bo- that visible bodies of humans and non-human animals, or visible of physical economic activities and 
physical technologies had esoteric realities and spirit natures that were, were more real than their visible forms. So, and, and in, in this world where uh, vis- visible bodies, economic technologies, uh, sorry, economic activities and technologies had aesthetic realities and spirit natures, these pawangs, the spirit mediums, miracle workers were operating at an interface between these multiple realities. Now, this, 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 and I, I, please, please uh, feel free to probe me further if you like, but there's so much in these manuscripts as you, you're asking about this world of multi this multiversal world. It's just so much in these manuscripts. Now they're, they're, they're full of genealogies at times. So these pawangs, mediums, bomos, gurus, sheikhs have rich genealogies. At times, I mean, some of them have, have, have I mean, some of these manuscripts suggest that these pawangs were, were preordained to lead communities and mediate material activities at the time of the creation of the Nur Muhammad itself. Right, the light of Muhammad. Right, and the the beyond that, some of these genealogies would suggest that these miracle worker spirit mediums had longer lineages leading back to figures like Shiva. And Shiva was was very prominently put into an to an to an Islamic cosmology. Right, but but what was now? These were the genealogies beyond that. This this in this multiversal world of these manuscripts, what was there was be rituals of communication. Now these texts would compile rituals of communication that these pawangs would, would undertake with spirits of the frontier at times or spirits of the rain, spirits of water bodies, actually. And what they would do is that they would propitiate spirits, engage spirits in material activities, mobilize spirits for all kinds of material, socioeconomic activities, and beyond that, threaten spirits that if they did not partake in the socioeconomic activities, they would suffer the violence inflicted by these pawangs or spirit mediums who would mobilize prophets, uh, divinities, including figures like Shiva, Krishna, etc., to punish these these uh, malignant spirits who are not partaking in material activities to assist the clients or followers of these pawangs. All right now, what what uh, I think your question in terms of Islamic, uh, I, I believe you. I mean, if I'm reading it right, your question is largely. If, Pushing me to think how we we how do we think about this multiversal world of spirits and this world of of Islamic prophets and Hindu divinities in terms of Islamic cosmology and I, all I mean I I would say that one of the things that these texts actually were doing very actively was was on one hand they were localizing Islamic prophets in a very distinctly Malay setting so you'd find uh, you'd find a list of prophets as you mentioned Solomon earlier down to the the prophet king solomon down to the prophet muhammad localized in a malay setting right but beyond that what you would have is a assimilation of divinities right that that for the matter hindu tutelary divinities into islamic cosmologies and i mean why i mean lest we be lest we been lest we we wonder whether this we 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 start wondering what kind of cos- Islamic cosmology is, this is, we've been reminded by, by scholars of Islamic societies that the pre-Islamic traditions were regularly as- assimilated within Islam, within Islamic societies of the past. And it's it's only, I guess, only critiques of, of this, and, and it's, it's and, and some some Islamic some historians of Islamic societies have reminded us that there is only reformers who would, would deprive such 
an Islamic cosmology that's rich with with localized Islamic prophets or or or, or non-Muslim divinities. Only the reformers criticizing this these traditions would deprive them of their Islamic legitimacy. I hope that kind of answers your question. I'm sorry, I believe I went a bit long. I gave a long-winded and uh, perhaps confounding answer to your very important No, question. I, I, I think the, the, the sense of heterogeneity and the sense of borrowing that you precisely convey really gets at the core of these manuscripts, right? Because even when these manuscripts attempted to portray the relationship between miracle workers and the phenomenology and heterogeneity of labor or the metaphysical bodies of technologies, it's a very sort of complex, complicated relationship that I hope you could elaborate a a little bit on as well. Because um, this leads me very nicely into my following question, which is how does rice planting or shooting, which are seemingly material processes, assume a spiritual dimension in this text? Also, if we turn to manuscripts transmitted by Pawangs, who are pivotal cult figures for tin and gold miners in Malaya and Sumatra, how do religious life and extractive capitalism come to intersect in the 19th century? All right. Uh, thank you, Kelvin. And I, I just, um, so if I could, uh, I mean, if I could, if you could answer your, your very important question again, I think, I think perhaps if I could, if I, I think if I'm thinking in terms of how, if I'm doing justice to your question, in terms of how materiality and spirituality are coming together in these texts and the, the world I've been been trying to study, is that one thing I would say is that I, I found in my, as I, and this is an argue, argument I tried to make in the book, was that, that these textual traditions and uh, the living traditions of miracle workers, it's very mediums, that I said in, are, are very strong reminders that Islam was embedded into a, phenomenology of rice, ore, traps, and guns. At times, I mean, I was led to even speculate as I read these works and, and, and spent, uh, spent actually more than a decade, I mean, since 2007, sitting down with living miracle workers and spirit mediums, I've been very privileged to do that, that I, they often, these traditions of the past and present, led me to even think about, about things like rice, ore, traps, guns, etc. as and and technologies as metaphysical objects of the cosmos. And I'm kind of I mean I let me speculate that that about that because what was happening here was there was fusing of the time and space of prophets and, and powers of the past and the phenomenological experiences of peasants, miners, trappers and shooters in the present. So there's there was a lot going on in these materials that I, I just hope I've done justice in, in studying, actually. Now, in, in terms of your, your, if I go back to your question, I mean, what, what, how we see a kind of spirituality being operationalized was what we saw was that be it in rice cultivation, forest clearing, the use of technology or weapon technology, there's this idea of, of following a, a pawang or bomo. And, and of course, many, these figures, as I mentioned in the text, were were often professional figures, but following them and and, they, and following these pawangs, bomos, sheikhs, gurus who had elaborate Sufi lineages. So these texts had had very vivid, uh, elaborate Islamic genealogies that these figures had. So you were attaching yourself to someone who had an elaborate genealogy. But beyond that, there was uh, if we beyond we the world of genealogy, the and beyond the world of devotion and. Uh, attachment to a figure who had that elaborate genealogy, be it a man or woman, master, 
there was operationalization of Sufism or operationalization of Islam. What I mean here is that the the material activities were often represented and understood with by these pawangs as as operationalization of Islam and Sufism. So for the matter, I mean in a in a chapter of the text, I actually uh, describe and I hope I've done it uh, appropriately enough and clearly enough that that for the matter using a technology for that matter or a weapon technology could be could be was described in this text as moving through the stages of embodying Sharia devotion to a Sufi tariqa or path and being bonded to a Sufi master and guru. So using a technology for the matter was understood during this text as 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 being or as a form of operationalizing Sufism, and uh, in terms of your, I mean, and I think I think you've asked uh, another important question in terms of how these these men and women of the past, these pawns and spirit mediums, Sufi masters for that matter, were were engaged in the world of capitalism. And I think you you pointed me towards the chapter on on mining. I believe that's 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 where your question is leading me to. And I think I think what's what I, I would say is that that what is uh, is that what, what is interesting in these mining manuscripts and a number of other manuscripts that I worked with was that what we found was that in this world of of Malaya becoming one the largest tin producing space of the globe for that matter. In this this world in which we've learned so much about I mean so in this Sorry, in this world in which Malayan, Malayan mines were being being worked by by capitalists, uh, 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 entrepreneurs from from various parts of the globe. I mean, we've we've read in historiography about how Chinese mining entrepreneurs, for that matter, were driving the extraction of mine in these areas. Now, one of the things that I'm trying to do in this chapter is plug these spirit mediums and miracle workers back into the world, because what we find from these manuscripts and European records is that how actively this 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 uh, this miracle workers were working with capitalists, being employed by capitalists to go into mines, to prospect for ore, to extract ore, and beyond that, I mean. Since you were you were you were asking an important question about extractive capitalism, what was happening in these mines with these miracle workers were imposing a system of law, be it a hukum pawang, it was it was described by some colonial scholars, or be it a form of sharia, it would be described by by some some pawangs of the past and present. So they're imposing a form of law in these mines where they were regulating the conduct of miners, ensuring that labor proceeded, all right, banning certain substances on coming to mine, down to regulating the sexual behavior and conduct of these miners in the mine and cultivating a proper form, cultivating proper forms, uh, proper norms of comportment in the mine to ensure that labor and extraction continued. Like, I hope that did some justice to your question, Talvin. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that that definitely brings us to the next question, which is what remains of these diverse life worlds today? Because throughout your fieldwork, what can you conclude about the continued relevance and vibrancy of Bobos today, especially when they're responding to an age of neoliberal capital and an age of, you know, rising authoritarianisms? How have they responded to these crises in the world um, through their own sort of cosmologies? Thank you, Kelvin. That's a, that's a difficult question because on one hand, I think like... Uh... I might just draw you into the conversation. I think we've uh, you uh, also well aware of the fact that that a number of of uh, shrines, 
cemeteries, burial grounds where a number of these Momos, Pawangs are often visited to commemorate the Pawangs and Momos of the past have been have been destroyed in places like Malaysia and Singapore over the past few decades. And I think one of the painful parts of this book was, as I said, I mean, I read a number of these textual traditions of the past with living Pawangs, Bomos, Gurus in the Malay world. And, and, and in Malaysia and Singapore, I think one of the painful parts was actually uh, dealing with, with the loss. I mean, it was one of the painful parts was sitting with these, these figures who were often dealing with the loss of, of cemeteries or past Pawangs, Bomos that were being demolished over the past few decades. Now, nevertheless, I do want to point out here that, that, that Bomos of the past, Pawangs of the past and the present have always been versatile. So, let, let's, let's we assume that we're going to be operating within, uh, I mean, I must say that, that, that we, I, I, I mean, let's we, let's we assume that we, they're operating within, uh, in one of a better term, exotic locations like cemeteries, burial grounds, shrines, uh, would be limestone hills, wherever, you know, we're, we're, they, they, op- they're highly versatile. I mean, the number of these miracle workers of the past, uh, miracle workers that I met in the Malay world were operating in all kinds of diverse spaces, be it coffee shops, down to offices, etc. Now, they're, they're, so I, I would say that in spite of, of the fact that we are seeing, uh, we have seen an encroachment on on spaces of congregation or spaces of commemorating past pawangs, we have seen and, and a number of scholars have written about how at least within Malaya and Malaysia, we've seen an increasing bureaucratization and what, to borrow the words of William Brofer, institutional Islamization of, of Islam since the late 19th century. I, I, I mean, one of the things that we do see is that these spirit mediums, BOMOs, miracle workers are still actively participating in the world. I did describe that I grew up in a world that I felt was a universe of these figures and I still do know, uh, I still do know various Pawangs and Bomos who are operating very actively in this world. And I think they're, they're compared, I mean, in the past and the present, Pawangs, Bomos, let alone we assume that there's a fraternity of spirit mediums, miracle workers, let assume we assume there's a Sufi fraternity out there. There have been, there have been competitions between these groups. And as in the past, in the present, we find certain miracle workers being much more prominent at a certain moment of time and and competing while others are competing with their rivals to actually move up their rank of, of prominence. I, I'm I'm not sure whether I'm understanding, I'm sorry, I'm answering your question accurately, but like the, as in the past and in present, I would say that these miracle workers, spiritualists, continue to combine multiple roles. Now, what I mean by multiple roles is that they operate as healers, they operate as Sufi masters, they operate as as uh, miracle workers, astrologers, they operate as seers, etc. So they combine multiple roles at times and some of them might play certain roles more than others. This ensures the kind of versatility in the world. Now, uh, in terms of of, uh, India understanding of their activities, of course, as I spoke to many of these miracle workers, not only were they disturbed by the encroachment upon spaces for that matter, but they were also disturbed by what they would often lump very uh, very loosely, I would say, as Wahhabism or attack on of scripturalists, be it Salafis, be it Wahhabis, that this attack upon their activities and their space. Now they, they they were actively conscious of the fact that they were being their 
their activities were being increasingly regulated in spite of the fact that I found many of them thriving in their activities. Now, why I say that I use these categories loosely was, as I said, uh, debates between these miracle workers and competitions were as prominent in the past as in the present. Now, a number of these miracle workers will attack each other also, all right, and challenge their rivals in the sphere. Now, but 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 not to get too much into that, but in terms of your question of how they, they're conceiving of themselves in their own world, I think one of the things that, that has emerged with this increasingly increasing consciousness that they are they're feeling threatened institutionally or by groups that they lump they they loosely classify as Wahhabi or Salafi, is that 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 some of these miracle workers have felt threatened and stopped using certain appellations, at least in public. So some of the figures I knew, at least at the start of my research, would, would be comfortable with certain appellations such as BOMO, have, have increasingly stopped using such appellations in want of what they are uh, being conceived of. And I use this in inverted commas, more Islamic appellations. Um, sorry, that's a, probably a very long conf- confusing answer to a very important question. So I'll stop myself there. No, thank you so much for that. Uh, and I think that that sort of is a is emblematic of the, the contemporary transformations of religious life as well. And I think that that further underscores the import and urgency of your work in really sort of, in really sort of foregrounding and highlighting a world of um, diverse cosmopolitan religious orientations and engagements that you know, seems starkly different from the world that we inhabit today. So before we move on to our last traditional question, can you please read a paragraph from the book? Thank you, Kelvin. And I think I think I will read a, uh, a paragraph that, that, that would, would tie up with your earlier question because one of the things that to show the versatility, versatility of these men and women in the present is the fact that I, I often met some of these uh, Pawangs and Bomos in spaces that I, I had not expected to. And this is probably coming from my own limitations of understanding the Pawangs and Bomos. So I will read this paragraph, which I hope is fine. And I I, I should mention that I might just uh, paraphrase the paragraph from the book to, to just mm-hmm. translate some of the words that, that are non-English words, if that's fine. Of course. Although I was primarily preoccupied with textual analysis, my fieldwork led me to discover widespread paideas of BOMOs across the Indian Ocean and beyond. For example, while inquiring about Sufi networks in Philadelphia in September 2017, I met three self-professed BOMOs of African-American origins who had lived in Pahang, Pera, and Aceh. They stayed in Sufi lodges and were initiated into branches of the Qadiri and Naqshbandi Tariqas where they acquired the ilmu of healing and mediating American guns and bullets while practicing Malay uh, Malay Islamic martial arts. These bomos have returned to the United States to initiate other Muslim and non-Muslim devotees into their Sufi pathways and to serve as semi-professional spirit mediums, healers and martial arts gurus. They describe their return as being in line with other Pawangs of the past who healed societies plagued by epidemics and calamities. In their words, they had returned at an opportune time, just when they were needed to restore the spiritual and material health of a society suffering from a new pathology of Panyakit, Trump. 
Like all the Pawangs I met, these American Bomos reminded me that all aspects of the visible world were connected to the unseen. Material life, economic production, extraction of resources, uses of technology, inclement weather, and even political elections, examples being Brexit, Trump, were intertwined with the ilmu and charismatic religious authority of miracle workers. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Well, Taryn, we've taken up a lot of your time. So as by way of conclusion, can you tell us what you're working on now and a little bit about your current and future projects? Oh, thank you, Kelvin. I, I'm, no, you haven't taken up much of my time. It's such a pleasure. I, I would just very briefly say that I'm working on two projects at the moment. And, uh, and I mean, I've been working on a series of articles on... Uh, on, on shrines and, and Sufi masters in Batavia, uh, Rangoon, and Singapore. But I'm currently working on two larger projects, one of which is a work on animal Islam, on Malay manuscripts on animals. So particularly, it's, 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 a, it's something that has come up from this earlier project on uh, Malay manuscripts and these miracle workers. I found a corpus of manuscripts on animals and animality itself. So I'm taking it, I'm, I'm working on that. But my other project that I'm, I'm really excited about and I, I, I hope is of interest to to other scholars is, is a work that I've been some preoccupied with over the, the last few years on Singapore Islam. So clearly it's very influenced by the works of scholars working on Indian Ocean port cities, etc., including... Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, the works of scholars on Indian Ocean port cities and largely studying how Singapore, for that matter, was a center of global Sufism in, from, uh, in between the period of the late 19th and early 20th century. And they're really exciting and I'll, I'll definitely be looking out for them. But for now, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast today. And thank you listeners for listening to today's episode in which we explored Miracles in Material Life by Professor Terence Sevier published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. You can find the book on book, uh, Bookstore or other, other outlets. This is your host, Calvin Ng. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.